calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 2, Episode 23. One. Frances couldn't quite remember where she was. She had been in Middle Coombe in Ireland. They had been trying to stop the network. Then she had... She tried to think, but her brain shied away. Better not to dwell on the past, focus on the present. She could hear voices, sharp and urgent. Heart rate up, blood pressure stable, for the moment anyway. How long has it been since the last shift? At least an hour? That's probably a good sign. What about those? The pause before the last word was pregnant with nothing good. Worry about that later. Does anyone know what happened? Some kind of magical backlash. We lost containment. It's lucky we got her out at all. Francis knew the last voice, Asante. She struggled to open her eyes. When she did, all she could see was ceiling and bright light shining down on the lower half of her body. She's coming around. Asante? Uh, Frances's mouth felt dry and gluey, but she must have managed to make herself understood because Asante's face appeared smiling down at her. Frances felt her brush a lock of hair off her face. How are you feeling? Is there any pain? A doctor with the distinctive Vatican crest embroidered on his coat was shining a light into Frances's eyes, checking her pupils. That answered the question of where she was, at least. Frances had to think about it. I, I don't think so. Her eyes sought Asante's and found them deep and wide and sad. Did we win? Did we stop the network? Asante shushed her. Don't worry, you're going to be fine. That isn't what I asked, Frances thought. The other doctors, nurses, and assistants were all moving around the lower half of her bed, out of her line of sight. She felt the bed shift. Someone muttered something about a reflex response. Can you feel that? The doctor asked. Frances struggled to sit up. She had felt something, but what her brain was telling her didn't make any sense. 
She tried to go back to the last thing she could remember about Middle Coombe, but all she could bring to mind was a rush of magic and fabric over her head and Asante and Liam shouting, and she was being carried, bouncing, swinging, and... What happened to me? Hands were trying to push her back against the bed. Calm down, you're going to hurt yourself. Frances shoved hard at the hands around her. Whatever they were hiding from her, she had to know. It couldn't be as bad as what she was imagining. It couldn't be. Frances looked down at herself. She thought, why are there snakes in my bed? Until she realized they weren't snakes, they were more like tentacles, and they were growing from her hips. Her legs had been replaced by a writhing mass of reptilian flesh. This wasn't real. It couldn't be. Francis looked up and saw Asante's wide, sad eyes and screamed. I said hold her. They were swearing in Latin. Francis felt a pinch like the snap of a rubber band, followed by a push and a burning feeling. Then the world felt very far away, and she lost consciousness. Sal wanted nothing more than to go back to her apartment, forget that she had ever heard of Christina, Opie, and the network, and sleep for a week. Instead, she grabbed a quick shower in the society's gym and was quietly thankful she had started to keep at least two full changes of clothes stashed away at work. They had bloodied the network's nose at Middlecombe, but according to Opie, Christina had gotten away clean. Liam was tracking her now, and as soon as they had a destination, Sal expected to be heading out. Bad enough that the network's quest to create a magical, technological hive mind had ruptured reality in a small Irish town. If Opie's information was accurate, the network had found a way to make their own demonic books. Sal really hoped that Opie had been lying to them. As far as they knew, the ability to build the books that Team 3 had been created to seek out and contain had been lost to the world centuries ago. If that power was in the hands of a group of techno-cultists who believed that magic was a force that should be set free in the world... Sal forced herself to shake off a train of thought that would do her no good to pursue. But even if Opie had been exaggerating the network's capabilities, they couldn't afford to let Christina regroup. Surely, Aunt Julie, after the near disaster of his indecision during their last mission, couldn't fail to realize that the time to act was now. She found Liam alone in the archives, bent over his computer. Any word about Francis? Sal asked. Liam shook his head. Asante's still in with her. And Menchu? Anjuli called him in for a face-to-face. -face. You think he's going to explain what the fuck happened with the chain of command in Middlecombe? Liam snorted. Yeah, like that shit is explainable. He had a point. Sal's history in law enforcement had taught her that failure of nerve by one's superiors was seldom explicable. Unfortunately, it nearly always had the same result. Someone farther down the chain was going to have to take the fall. Manchu arrived in Anjuli's office, torn between fury and fatigue. He wanted to let fly with all his rage and frustration from the last 24 hours. With Francis's injury, not to mention the destruction of a town and its entire population, he had plenty of ammunition. But the toll of those losses, coming at the end of his constant push and pull with Asante over the last few months, had left him near the end of his energy. Just a little bit farther, he told himself. Fine, Christina. Put a stop to her plans. Then rest. We've come too far to give up now. From behind his desk, Anjuli waited for Menchu to seat himself in one of the two guest chairs. For a change, the office was immaculate. No piles of stray papers or half-unpacked boxes remained to ruin the impression of a powerful man inside one of the most powerful organizations on Earth. Was he too busy cleaning his office to give us a clear directive? 
The thought was uncharitable, but Manchu had known Anjuli for more than a decade, and he had never seen his office so tidy. It looked almost bare. Father Manchu, said Anjuli, you may be wondering why I wish to speak with you. Before Manchu could give voice to any number of replies, ranging from sarcastic to impudent, the Monsignor continued, I wish to apologize. Manchu's mouth snapped shut. My lack of decisiveness in a time of crisis led to unnecessary casualties among innocents and our own. Although the society was able to contain the disaster, our success came in spite of my leadership, not because of it. Manchu, feeling hope in his heart in a way he hadn't realized he had been missing, nonetheless measured his next words carefully. I'm sure what has happened will help to guide you in the future. Anjuli shook his head. No. What? In light of recent events, I have chosen to withdraw my name from consideration for promotion to cardinal. And I will be tendering my resignation from the society within the hour. Manchu's expression must have been an accurate mirror of his inner turmoil because Anjuli gave him a wry smile. I'm sorry, Arturo, I know you weren't expecting this. But out of respect for our friendship, I wanted to tell you first. Beep, beep, beep. Asante had barely left Francis's bedside since Team 3 had returned to Rome. The beeping of the dozen monitors could have been nearly soothing in its regularity, except that the constant rhythm meant there had been no change in her assistant's condition. Francis's heartbeat was steady, her blood pressure was fine. Even the tangled mass that used to be her legs were demurely covered by layers of starch sheets and gently folded blankets. The doctors had given Frances something to help her sleep and keep her calm. She had yet to wake up. Make it through, Asante thought to her, and I will never let this happen to anyone else, whatever it takes. A soft knock from the open doorway. Asante looked up. Father Manchu let himself in and sat down on the opposite side of Frances's bed. He took her hand. Any news? Asante asked. Manchu shrugged. Plenty. Very little of it good. Manjuli is going to resign. From the church? From the society. Asante grimaced. It's a start. She waited for Manchu to tell her that she should be more forgiving, for him to counsel her to patience, to turn Francis's condition into a reason for her to give up the quest to understand to use magic. Anything so they could finally have the fight that had been simmering between them for months. Manchu sagged in his chair, letting his head fall back and stared up at the ceiling. His words, when they came, were so quiet she could barely hear them. Is this our fault, Asante? What? For years, we've worked well with Anjuli precisely because he didn't make difficult decisions. We did, and then he would back our play. Sometimes he complained about it, but it's not as though his lack of leadership qualities should come as a surprise. Asante huffed a laugh. Did you put a gun to his head and force him to become acting cardinal? No, did you? Please, I'd never touch a gun. We didn't discourage him. Maybe wanting a cardinal who was as malleable as our Monsignor was greedy. And now we're being punished for our sins? Asante asked. Manchu shrugged. Asante shook her head. So goddamned Catholic. It's not always about you, you know? Manchu's turned to scoff. Asante asked, how are the other teams taking the news? Fox smells blood in the water. I haven't even seen Sansoni. 
Team 2 has been in full cover-up mode after the bombing. They can't admit it was the society, because they can't admit that the society exists, but if they blame someone else, it's likely to set off an international incident. A consequence that His Holiness has made very clear is in all ways unacceptable. Santi's eyebrows rose. He's said that? I am told it is a direct quote. It was so easy to fall into the rhythms of familiar banter. Conversational tracks well-worn over the years. For a moment, she could imagine that things were simple again, that their biggest problems were demonic books and incompetent sorcerers. But then silence fell, and Francis's monitors beeped away, counting out Asante's failures. She sighed. You think I'm reckless, but I'm not. I'm scared. You would give your life to this cause to protect the world. Sal, Liam, Grace, all of them would. So would you, said Manchu. Yes, said Asante. But for the rest of you, if you give your life to the cause, your task is over. Succeed or fail, you have given everything that you could, and no one can ask for more. Asante leaned forward. I have children, Menchu. Grandchildren. When I am gone, I might not be able to leave them the world I knew, but I, I have to leave them a world that they can live in. Menchu had nothing to say to that, and they sat together in silence. Liam's eyes burned, his back ached, and the less said about the tendons in his forearms after ten hours bent over his keyboard, the better. But at last, a picture had begun to emerge. He just wished that it wasn't the picture he was looking at. He sat up, joints puffing as he stretched and attempted to return circulation to muscles gone slack. He hadn't been able to go to the gym in days, and the break in his routine bothered him. Since his last encounter with the network, he knew intellectually that he was free of his demon, and that his hours of uninterrupted work were spurred by the urgency of their situation, not a malevolent supernatural force. He didn't need his routines anymore. He could have a piece of cake if he wanted, even if it wasn't someone's birthday. His mind knew that. It was just that the part of him that had spent the last nine years looking over his shoulder didn't believe it. At his shift in position, Sal looked over. Did you find Christina? She asked. Liam nodded. You sure? Another nod. Sal glanced up as though she could see through the ceiling to the offices where the leaders of the society were sequestered, determining their next move in the wake of Anjuli's resignation. Are we going to be able to do anything about it? She asked. Leadership's last word to the three teams had been do nothing until you receive further instructions. Not fucking likely. Another moment of silence. Sal nodded. I'll go tell Grace. Give Asante and Manchu deniability if this all goes tits up. Sal grimaced. I thought I'd let her decide if we should tell them or not. Coward. Sal shrugged. You want to ask Asante to leave Francis's bedside? Liam shuddered. Pass. Sal was halfway up the staircase in the middle of the archives before she called back. Where are we going anyway? Liam took a deep breath and didn't let his voice shake as he answered, Belfast. Sal nodded. A few moments later, she was gone. Liam watched her go. Belfast, where it had all begun. Grace sat in her room, watching her candle and her life burn away before her. When she heard footsteps approach her door, she quickly pinched out the flame. Hopefully, whoever had come wouldn't notice the wisp of smoke lingering in the air. 
Asante, lost in thought at Francis's bedside, jerked in surprise as a small, cool hand touched her wrist. Francis had opened her eyes and was struggling to sit up. Together, Manchu and Asante helped raise the bed and position her pillows behind her. How are you feeling? Manchu asked. Francis scowled at him. I feel like my legs have been turned into tentacles. She almost sounded angry, but her breath hitched just a bit on that last word. She swallowed. What are you doing here? Why aren't you out stopping the network? Asante took her assistant's hand, squeezing it in her own. Francis pulled it back. Stop it, I don't need to be coddled. I need for what happened to you to mean something. Three heads turned to the doorway where Grace stood. Having finished Francis's sentence, she now waited in silence. Yes, said Francis, that. Now help me get out of here and we can- Grace interrupted her again. No, you need to rest. You don't know what I need, Francis shouted, but her protest quickly withered and died under Grace's level stare. I think you know that I do. Francis shrunk back against her pillows. It's not the same, she muttered, but she couldn't meet Grace's eyes. Grace nodded to Manchu and Asante. I need to talk to you. About what, asked Manchu. Not here. Sal and Liam were waiting on the terrace of a cheap cafe near Termini Station. Manchu noticed the packed bags dashed casually beneath their aluminum chairs, so they were a tourist couple about to begin the next leg of their journey. Manchu spoke before Sal could. I assume this is where you inform us of your intention to flaunt the hierarchy of the society and the authority of the Vatican and go after the network on your own? That was Sal's plan, said Grace, but I convinced her that you would both agree to come. And why are we going to do that? Manchu asked. Because we've seen what waiting for orders gets us, Asante suggested. Because defying orders is what we've been doing since Sal got possessed by the hand, Liam muttered. Sal kicked Liam under the table and met Manchu's stare with one of her own. Because we're a team, and saving the world is our job even if we don't have permission. Manchu knew he'd been right to recruit her for the team when she'd found them in New York, throwing herself into their investigation at every turn and refusing to let anything stop her from saving her brother from the demon that had seized him. He cleared his throat. We need a plan and resources. After what happened to Francis, not to mention the rest of Middle Coombe, we can't just hope for the best, especially if we're off the books and can't count on backup from the society. Sal pulled an envelope out of her jacket. We have the shroud, and that should neutralize whatever books the network's got. Liam tapped his temple with his ring finger. And we have me. The network has retreated to Belfast, either to lick their wounds or to plan their next move, but that's my home turf. Wherever they are in the city, I can find them. And we've moved my candle to Sal's apartment, just in case we get disavowed again while we're gone, said Grace. Manchu shared a look with Asante. That sounds a lot like a plan, he said. She gave him a tight nod. I'll go pack. Two. Liam's breath steamed in the early morning chill. This was one of Belfast's residential neighborhoods, and quiet at this hour. Liam walked as slowly as he dared without appearing to loiter. Every footstep brought back a hundred memories of making this walk a thousand times before. True, he no longer felt the gaping hole of his demon-induced amnesia, but the process of unlocking the closed-up parts of his memory was ongoing, and although he hadn't admitted it to the others, it occasionally caught him by surprise. Being back on his old home ground threatened to trigger an overwhelming flood with every breath of familiar air. Liam paused at a bus stop, stomping his feet against the cold and forcing his brain back in order. You okay? Grace's voice asked in his ear. 
She was watching from somewhere among the rooftops across the street. Sal and the others were in a rental van around the corner, waiting for the all clear. Liam didn't look out from the posted bus schedule, but nodded, counting on Grace to notice. Do you want backup? Head shake. Then you better move on. The bus is less than a block away. Liam nodded again as though the sign had confirmed his question and crossed the street in the middle of the block. There was little enough risk of the bus driver noticing him or remarking on his presence, but buses were full of cameras. Until proven otherwise, Liam had to assume that the network had access to any video feed in the city. Flying into Shannon and driving across the border probably meant they hadn't been tagged when they arrived in the country. Probably. The neighborhood had changed in the last nine years, which only made the muddle of Liam's memories more confusing. The corner shop was now a bank branch. The pub looked like it had gotten a new coat of paint. The signs of the Great Recession still lingered, but the city had brushed itself off in the last few years. Maybe it was the new UK economic incentives. Maybe it was the lack of violence that had been the punctuation of Liam's childhood. Fortunately, the small, empty lot in the middle of the block hadn't been bulldozed in the name of progress. The old chain-link fence had been replaced with something more substantial, but was still eminently climbable. What had once been filled with trash, dice, and drug deals was now an informal community garden. Liam narrowly avoided stepping in some grandmother's cabbages on his way over the fence, but a glance confirmed that the UK surveillance state hadn't decided to look quite this closely at home front agriculture yet. Now, the only question is, good. The dilapidated storage shed had been refurbished, but not torn down and replaced. At least he wouldn't have to worry about any belligerent junkies taking offense at being roused, like he had in the old days. Not that Liam had cared about belligerent junkies when he had set up this bolt hole. His demon partner hadn't, anyway, and that had been good enough for him. There were days Liam wondered if forgetting his years of possession had been so easy because his brain had been too distracted at the time to really absorb what was going on around him. Or maybe the wiser parts of his nature had decided that it was better not to pay too much attention to what he was doing. Liam broke the padlock on the shed and barred the door once he was inside. Not the most effective security system, but he didn't need it to last for long. In the back corner, under a pile of tarps, garden implements, and a wheelbarrow, he found the remains of a rectangle chiseled into the concrete foundations. Liam brushed it clear, making sure nothing lay across the crudely carved line, and then knelt down, letting his right hand rest against the cold, gritty surface of the cement. He wasn't actually sure that this would work without his demon along for the ride. He wasn't sure if he hoped it did or that it didn't. Liam took a deep breath, closed his eyes, and leaned his full weight against his hand, pressing into the ground. Nothing happened. Well, that was it. He could get up, brush himself off, and go tell the others that this wasn't going to work. They'd have to stop the network another way. Munchie wouldn't object. It was probably even the smart thing to do. Liam had been the one who had always argued that they should depend on their own resources, that fighting magic with magic was about as effective as holding out a torch to extinguish a fire. The others would be disappointed, but they would pull together like they always did and find another solution. They would come through. But would they come through in time? Or you could stop being an idiot and honestly try to open the damn door that you brought everyone here to find. Liam's internal monologue was comfortingly blunt. Liam laid his hand on the concrete again. This time, as he did so, he reached back in his mind and found the memory of the hundred times he had come here before. The door wasn't magic. The magic was what was hiding the door. He aligned his mind with the memory and remembered what he had to do. Liam leaned forward and this time felt the soft click of a pressure switch swinging free. 
A moment later, a rush of musty air washed over his face. Liam kept his eyes closed. He had never gotten the hang of passing through an illusion while he was looking at it. The concrete in front of him would appear unchanged. Liam pictured what he knew to be there instead. A solid wooden door hinged to fall inward, revealing a short drop into the forgotten foundation of a house that had been bombed out and demolished so long ago that no one remembered it had ever been there. Liam opened his eyes once his boots hit the earthen floor. The flashlight on his phone showed that some of the walls had further crumbled while he had been away, but his work shoring up the structural supports had kept the roof from full collapse. It was exactly as he had left it. Everything was going according to plan. Fuck. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Once he disabled his mundane security measures, it was a simple matter for Liam to open the sewer access. Asante, Manchu, and Sal went from the back of the van directly down into the manhole behind it, Grace keeping an eye from above to tell them when the coast was clear and they could descend without anyone remarking on a priest making sewer repairs. A few minutes later, Grace herself arrived and Liam carefully maneuvered the manhole covered back into place above them. Sal wrinkled her nose as she ducked through the last doorway into the abandoned basement. When you said you had a bolt hole, I didn't think you meant hole quite so literally. The usable area was about 15 feet square, although square was a generous term for the irregular space left clear amid the tumbled bricks and broken rebar. 
How did you find this place? Asante asked. I was down in the sewers, making a tap into the fiber optics as they were being laid. I had to duck out of the way of one of the crews running the lines. I thought I was ducking into a disused pipe and ended up here. Lucky break, said Grace. I had a lot of those for a few years there. In retrospect, I uh, suspect it had more to do with the demon than luck. A silence fell over the small group, standing together in a space uncomfortably like a tomb, lit only by Liam's phone and a couple of flashlights. All right, then, said Menchu. This is where you think we can tap into whatever the network is running? Liam nodded. Then let's get to work. Sal, with nothing to add to the wiretapping operation, either magically or technically, found a corner where she was out of the way and let Liam and Asante do whatever it was they were doing under Manchu's more than adequate supervision. She noticed Grace had done the same, watching from a spot a few feet down the wall. After a few moments, Grace noticed that Sal was watching her and glared a question in her direction. What? You aren't reading a book. I can see how you made detective. Sal ignored the sarcasm. Why not? She asked. Grace shrugged. Everything okay? I'm fine. I'm allowed to waste my time if I want to. Sure. If the network destroys the world in an ill-considered attempt to create a magically interfacing hive mind, the number of minutes left on my candle is hardly going to matter, is it? Probably not. I don't feel like reading. I'm thinking. Silence fell between the two women. Finally, Sal said, you finished your last book on the plane and you forgot to bring another one, didn't you? Grace did not deign to reply. Okay, said Liam, we're in. Can you find the book? Menchu asked. Liam was clicking away at his laptop as Asante continually drew and redrew a circle in the air around them with a silver letter opener. Working on it. Get out before they notice the tap, Asante said. I'm already getting interference. Just a second, said Liam. I'm almost there. Liam's fingers doubled their speed and Sal half expected to see smoke rising from his keyboard. Tiny sparks flew from the tip of Asante's letter opener, and it made a scraping sound against the air. They definitely know something is going on, she said. Have they found us? Asked Grace. I don't think so. Menchu nodded to Sal and Grace. Prepare to move out as soon as Liam's done. I don't want- Fuck! Liam slammed his laptop shut, threw it to the ground, and sent his boot cracking against the hardened shell with enough force to shatter plastic. Still, he kept stomping until the base cracked open and he could kick the battery aside. Asante's letter opener stopped sparking as soon as the computer died with a final sputter and shriek of tortured electronics. What happened? Asked Minchu. Liam wiped his brow. Well, they definitely know we're in the city. Did you find it? Asked Sal. Liam nodded. Opie wasn't bluffing. They can make their own books. Then he grinned. But I know where. Sal let out the breath she had been holding. She could see her own resolution reflected in Manchu and Liam's faces. Grace's expression was even more impassive than usual. Asante's eyes glittered with excitement. For Francis, the hours in the society's infirmary passed in alternation between fitful sleep and undifferentiated quiet. A few of Asante's other archival assistants came by to see her, but none of them stayed for long. Francis wasn't sorry to see them go. It wasn't just because of the way that they assiduously avoided looking at the bottom of her bed. She didn't want to see anyone. She didn't want to talk about what happened. She really didn't want to talk about how everything was going to be fine and she would be back in the archives before she knew it. Even if she believed that everything was going to be fine, the one fact she was sure of was that everything had changed. She had changed. 
At a fundamental level, she felt like she no longer knew herself. It was all she could think about, and every time she did, she wanted to cry. A nurse came in to check her blood sugar and added something to her IV. Almost instantly, Frances could feel her brain floating and her limbs grow heavy. What are you doing? She slurred. The man smiled at her. It's something to help you sleep. Frances had been sleeping for hours already, or had it been days. Why don't they want me to be awake? I don't need it, she protested. Don't worry, he said as she drifted away. You're going to be fine. She barely had time to think, but I'm not fine, before she was unconscious. It felt like only seconds had passed, but when she opened her eyes again, the lights in the hall had dimmed for nighttime and unremembered dreams pressed at the back of her mind. Then she heard the creak of a wooden chair and Frances realized she was not alone. She fumbled with the light beside the bed. The IV tubes and the aftermath of the drugs made her clumsy, but soon another hand came, caught her fingers, helped her twist the brass key to turn on the lamp. Frances squinted at the sudden wash of yellow light, blinking until she could see her visitor. Of all the people she might have expected, Monsignor Fox was nowhere on the list. Uh, do you need some water? He asked. Frances shrank back at his voice, but he didn't move again. She wanted to tell him to leave. She licked her lips and found her mouth glued together by sleep and spit. Slowly, she nodded. She watched as he turned and filled a small glass from the pitcher that sat on the dresser by the wall. Perhaps due to Asante's low opinion of the man, Francis had always viewed Monsignor Fox as a muscle-bound mountain of rage and obstructionism. Now, seeing him close up for the first time, the comparison to a mountain was not unwarranted. However, engaged in a small domestic task, he seemed less like a monster than she had expected. Of course he isn't a monster, she told herself. There's only one monster in this room. She accepted the cup and drank. The water unglued her mouth and tasted cool and fresh against her tongue. Thank you. Professional hazard of overseeing team one. I've spent more than my share of time here. I don't know if it's the drugs or the air filters, but this place is drier than the devil's dandruff. Francis didn't know what she was supposed to say to that. May I sit? Fox asked. How long had he been sitting before she woke up? How could she stop him? What did he want? What would he do if she said no? As those thoughts raced through her brain, Fox turned back to the chair in the corner and brought it over to her bedside. He settled his bulk into it again, and it creaked. I know you must be tired, but I need to know where Asante and the others have gone. Francis tried to look surprised. They aren't here? Fox's eyes narrowed. I can respect your loyalty, but it is misplaced. Asante and Team 3 are away without authorization, in defiance of a general order to cease all activities and stand down. If they come back now, they might be able to salvage their careers. If Team 1 is ordered to bring them back by force, I can't guarantee their survival. Francis lifted her chin. That's not how it worked out last time. Fox's expression darkened. I'm asking you nicely, but I don't have to. Francis forced herself not to look away. Before she could speak, a voice from behind the Monsignor asked, accosting a woman in her hospital bed in the middle of the night is asking nicely. Sansoni, said Fox, don't your spies ever sleep? What spies? I came to check on a colleague. Sansoni stepped from the doorway into the spill of light by the bed. As I imagine you were, she added, tart words flung toward Fox with pinpoint precision. If the barbs hit their target, Fox didn't flinch. 
Francis watched the supervisor of Team 1 and the power of Team 2 stare each other down in the tiny room. If she had been able to leave her bed, she would have slipped out to give them space. What's your game, Sansoni? asked Fox. I don't have one. Fox snorted at that, but he also looked away first, turning back to Francis with the same concerned smile he'd had when he offered her a cup of water. I'll check back with you later. Think about what I've said. Sansoni lingered until Francis could no longer hear Fox's heavy tread fading down the hall. Go to sleep, Sansoni said, twisting off the light. I'll make sure you aren't disturbed. She stepped out into the hall and left Francis staring at the darkened ceiling. It was too late for Sansoni's reassurances, though. Francis was already disturbed. The forgotten baseman in Belfast, Manchu could feel his team waiting for him to make a decision. He knew that if he did not give them a direction quickly, they would find their own paths and act with or without his say-so. They were nervous, resolute, excited, and it was time to put their talents and energy to work. Uh, Santi, if we find the network's bookbinding operation, can you shut it down without Liam's assistance? I believe so. Liam, can you? I can make sure Christina stays out of your way. Manchu nodded. I leave that to your initiative. Take Sal for backup. Grace, you and I will go with Asante. We should all assume that magical interference will put us out of contact as soon as we're in range of our respective targets, so our rendezvous will be in six hours. If there's no word from the other half of the team in ten, contact Rome immediately and tell them everything. Everything? asked Sal. Everything, said Manchu. If we fail here, they will have to know what they're dealing with. Understood? Everyone did. Godspeed to us all. It was just past nine o'clock when the manhole cover behind the white rental van slipped out of place and five people climbed out of the Belfast sewers. The group split into two and exchanged no words before parting. None of them failed to note that although dawn had long since passed, the sky above had taken on a pinkish tinge. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El Motar, Mur Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. 
cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolihi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.